Hey everybody, you're about to listen to a conversation with Cynthia Merchant. She's a former Hoffman teacher of nearly 20 years. And for the last several decades, she has been deeply in the work of somatic healing. Somatic is really just using the body, relating to the body, especially as distinct from the mind. And she talks about trauma and the idea of nervous system regulation. I hope you enjoy this episode in a deep conversation of what it means to heal. Cynthia Merchant. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning, and wow, 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 Cynthia Merchant is joining us today, and you're in for a treat. Cynthia, welcome to the program. Hi, Drew. It's wonderful to be here with you. Would you share a little bit about who you are and and what you do? Okay, well, you already said my name. I'm Cynthia Merchant. I'm a somatic psychotherapist in Berkeley, California. Uh, I do Peter Levine's somatic experiencing trauma resolution work in my private practice here, working with individuals, couples, and a few families. Blended in with all of that, of course, is uh, almost a 20-year background teaching the Hoffman process. I, I don't know. I think I started teaching the Hoffman process like when I was a baby, like in 1989, a year after I trained with Peter Levine. It's, it's in me from the beginning, the Hoffman process. And what are your memories of those years, 19 years teaching the Hoffman process? Yes. Well, to be totally honest, 17 and a half years teaching the Hoffman process, almost, it was almost 20 years. It was a, it was a really good role. Gosh, so what are my memories? Uh, you know, 20 years of walking with people through one of the most life-changing, you know, monumental rearrangements of one's inner sense of self that you could imagine. It was, it was a lot of things. It was, um, beautiful. It was uh, inspiring. It was heart-wrenching at times to hear some of what folks had gone through in their childhoods. And it was always really an experience of, of seeing how people could rise up from even some of the most difficult experiences and remake um, their experience of who they are inherently and who they could be in their lives and, and watch them change. Mm. To see people rise up from so much of their past, I love that image. Um, you know, people have said, how do you do this work? It's so challenging. And I think you just put it, put it so beautifully that it's actually quite inspiring to see people show up to their lives and learn and grow and change. Is that what you are inspired by? Absolutely. And the other thing that comes to mind is that it was also really a, a gift to watch people often go from coming into the Hoffman process with really adversarial or conflictual or unhappy relationships to their current parents in their adult lives, and to come out of the end of the week First of all, like loving and appreciating themselves more, but actually rediscovering their inherent love for their parents and not not a goody two shoes kind of, you know, I love my parents because I want them to love me, but a, a love based in a deep understanding and a lot of compassion for who their parents are. Yeah, the Hoffman process is about reigniting love and that that's what kept me in there all those years. Because I have to ask, what had you step out of that? And you're still in the healing field doing, doing powerful work in therapy. Was it time? 
Yeah, I think it was time. You know, I, I, um, it was, like I said, it was a really good solid run. Like the first 20 years of my career as a, an adult, um, working with people and helping people discover the possibility of healing. And I had trained with Peter Levine a year before I trained to be a Hoffman teacher. And, you know, if you know something about somatic experiencing, it's, it's not super keen on catharsis. So I trained in that first, and then immediately the next year, I did the apprenticeship to become a Hoffman teacher. And I was always walking this balancing act in all my Hoffman work uh, between loving the process and really working the principles of the process with people and seeing the positive change that the very specific and very supported and guided catharsis of the process, seeing the change that that made in people's lives, and also understanding some of the importance of titration, which is doing little bits and smaller bits and keeping things within a window of tolerance. And I was always balancing all of that in the work of teaching the Hoffman process. And I think there just came a time when, then I went back many, many years later, and I trained with Peter Levine before somatic experiencing was even called somatic experiencing. It was just somatic psychotherapy at that time. I went back many years later and retrained again, because I was getting so many folks coming in with trauma to my practice because by that time, I'd also gone back and become a psychotherapist, which I trained to do after many numbers of years of teaching the Hoffman process while I was still a teacher. And I, I just started becoming really enamored of really slow body sensation-based primary process. And so I, I found that more and more, I was kind of drawn to doing that. You know, I have this very deep, love in my heart for the Hoffman process. It changed my life. It put me on my feet as an adult person. I, I did the process when I was like 26 years old, I think, or 25, 25 years old. So it put me on my feet as an adult, and it put me on my feet as a professional person too. It gave me really good work to do helping other people, you know, transform. And so I saw so much good healing and change happen in the Hoffman process. And then it just came time for me to work in the domain of healing and change in another way. It was hard to leave. Each time you go through a Hoffman process as, as a teacher, and when you go through it as a participant, it really is a peak experience. It's one of those unique you know, moments in time when hearts open up, insight opens up, intuition opens up, magic happens, uh, like magic, like in shamanism, really, the magic of healing, transformation, awakening happens. And I mean, how could you not like that, right? I mean, that, that's my jam. I love that stuff. <laughs> that's fantastic. You know, I want to, I want to ask about this, because, um, well, first, you were with Peter Levine before he had somatic experiencing. So you was you were there early on in his trajectory. Will you just tell his story around how he came up with it? I think it was kind of chronicled in his first book, Waking the Tiger. I can give some of the details because I've heard Peter tell this story so many times. He was developing some relaxation techniques and working with people. Maybe it was even in Berkeley. And he talks about this client whose name, he gives her the name Nancy. And Nancy had had uh, some kind of a traumatic experience and she'd become almost agoraphobic. She couldn't go out of the house. She tried everything, her, her work uh, with other people wasn't helping her improve. In fact, she might have been getting worse. And somebody referred her to Peter and she came in and he had her lie down and do some relaxation and breathing exercises. And as she began to relax for a few moments, she felt better. And then all of a sudden, her heart started to race. I think I think this is what happened. And all and she was terrified. And then all of a sudden, I think her heart rate began to tank a bit. And she was saying to Peter, you know, I think she called him doctor at the time. He had a PhD. And she was like, you know, doctor, doctor, don't let me die. Don't let me die. What you know, what's happening? And she had a severe kind of trauma reaction. Um, 
her nervous system kind of really flip-flopping from high arousal to a deep heading into like a deep shutdown and and Peter was kind of freaked out too he, he tells the story he didn't really know what had quite had happened but he had this inspiration he saw a tiger in his mind's eye and he just said to Nancy Nancy run run you see those rocks over there run the tiger's coming run <laughs> and she started moving her legs lying there on the floor and you know ran with all of all of what she had and that gave her an experience somatically of completing some some very important element of a survival response and her system you know hit a kind of a peak and then began to discharge and you know calm down and and she did much better after that it's like something that had been trapped in her a kind of self-protective survival response that hadn't been able to mobilize in some earlier life event was uh, reconstellated and was able to be completed, I think, in that event. Now, I hope Peter, <laughs> if Peter hears this by any kind of weird coincidence, I hope I haven't done an injustice in the way I've related the story. But that's how I heard Peter say he came upon the importance of the nervous system in trauma and he studied it and explored it and worked with people for you know the last 50 years and it was only a few years after i trained with him that what he called at the time somatic psychotherapy which was the which was the foundation of uh somatic experiencing he had waking the tiger at that point in manuscript form it it all came together and he christened it somatic experiencing within just a few years of that time that i trained with him cynthia he saw it in the animal world as well as he looked out in how animals dealt with their trauma it mirrored back to him part of what he was learning in the clinical room is that right well, I believe what he understood um, from animal studies and research uh, around animals in the wild, because he did study the physiology of animals in the wild quite a bit. He's got two PhDs, one in psychology and one in ethology, I believe, which is the study of animals in the wild. Yeah, what he began to observe was that animals had the ability to have high arousal experiences in life-threatening situations and either use that high arousal survival energy or discharge it in ways that didn't leave their systems, their own physiology, didn't leave them uh, disorganized and basically traumatized. So he began to posit that if animals had that capacity, we as human animals would have that as well and that perhaps it was our social conditioning that was getting in the way of our healthy instincts being able to discharge high arousal survival energy after threatening events and come back to a healthy baseline this this very simply stated Wow. I, I thank you for the agility around these surprise questions I'm throwing your way. People can have a sense that, in fact, it's a in-the-moment kind of experience that we're having together. I did some thinking about my Hoffman world, but I hadn't thought uh, you'd be asking me these things. But I love talking about Hoffman, and I love talking about somatic experiencing. So I'm, I'm thrilled every, any way we go. You know, it's interesting as, as people listen to this, because more and more of the world is invested in their own change, being intentional around healing, around growth, around rewriting the story of the past and stepping more powerfully into the future. So given, Cynthia, you kind of are in this you are shepherding people out of trauma and into a better place. It's a general question, but I'm just curious, what, what do you notice in your work, in this journey, in leading people towards a better place? What do you, what do you see? 
What's it like to be you? What would we witness if we were you in the people we work with? Well, you know, I brought up the word love in regard to Hoffman. I think one of the most important elements of the Hoffman work is that it's really about getting a reset on our innate capacity to love, to know that we're lovable, and to receive love. And I would say that that's also in many ways a part of my work with somatic experiencing and, and, and in addressing trauma. My belief and the belief that I, I came to uh, in working in the whole somatic experiencing world is that our organisms, our beings, our spirits, they trend, they lean toward wholeness. They are ever intending, if you can give it a sense of intention, they're ever intending toward wholeness, toward healing, toward realization of potential. And we have an enormous capacity to heal and to grow and to discover more and more of our possibilities. So that's one thing I would say is that I see over and over again, this innate capacity for healing and wholeness in people, number one. Number two, the one of the main orientations I hold in working with people is that one of my teachers once said that trauma is unintegrated resource. We use the word resource a lot in the somatic experiencing world. And what he meant by that was that all the time we are surrounded by a resource, by nourishment, by wholesomeness, by goodness. Now, we're also influenced and affected by other things in us and around us as well. But Oftentimes in trauma, we don't, we're not aware of, we're not conscious of, and we don't integrate, therefore, um, all the goodness that held us through and got us to the other side of an experience. And so in the work, my interest and approach is in reestablishing as many connections to that goodness, to that to that nourishment, that wholesomeness, the help, the support. Peter has a beautiful thing that he says with people sometimes when they're coming through uh, an important transition in their in a piece of work with him, like a, like a little miracle happened, like the rope just happened to be hanging there or the tree branch held against all odds or their body did some kind of special rearrangement as the car went spinning around such that they weren't hurt badly. And then somehow someone showed up out of nowhere to lend a hand. And in those moments, Peter often has people say, if it fits for them, I give thanks for help unknown already on its way. I give thanks for help unknown already on its way. And that is a classic Peter Levine statement. Wow. And I think that sort of expresses or reflects the perspective that I try to uphold in my work with people, that the goodness is there, the nourishment is there, the wholesomeness is there, the help is there and available within and around us. And if we have the intention to pull for that, to tease that out of even the most difficult experiences and situations, it will help us find the way through. I like what you're saying, Cynthia, and that phrase by Peter. It's a corollary or a counter to the negative brain, the negative bias, which will find the clause that says, it's just you, you're unhelpable, unlovable, you're something's wrong with you this sort of says wait a minute actually take a breath because all around you and all inside you are resources at your disposal let's call them in that's right that's exactly right what a beautiful way to say it drew and it's like there is so much right with you there is so much that's wise and insightful and i want to use the word wise that that is arising very likely out of wisdom for for a very good reason and if we listen deeply and we honor and trust 
even in the things that may at first blush seem negative. You find people apologizing for things all the time, and it's like, oh, oh, oh wait a second here. Let's let's be a little curious. Might there be something intelligent right here, right in this? The love you must bring. I mean, it makes me pause to hold people in their light, even when they can't find it themselves. What a gift. Well, it's, yeah, thank you. That's a very, very lovely way to say it back to me, Drew. And I, I hope that that's what I do. And, and most of the time, I, that's, that's what I am doing with people. I'm grateful for that work and for that possibility to work with people in that way. I have a question. I don't know if you see this more, if there's trends over the course of your time doing this work so intimately with people. But one of the things I get curious about is, are we taking all of what we know around self-help and the emergence of psychology as a field we all are now steeped in in some way. It seems like nobody's really naive to this work, but it feels like it's being weaponized on some level in an endeavor to try and fix ourselves. There's something wrong with us and we need fixing. And I have a couple diagnoses that I'd like to tell you about. And so is that hindering some of the work to undo this notion that I need fixing? It's a great question. I wasn't sure at first exactly where you were going, and I could see it going a number of directions, but in the direction you've landed. First of all, I would say another reason I really love the somatic experiencing work, and that's a similar quality in the Hoffman work, is that it, it's enormously non-pathologizing. You know, we don't make people wrong or think of them as, you know, pathological, because so many things that might on the surface look, quote unquote, pathological, if you go deeply enough and come to understand certainly the trauma that, that likely is behind that, quote unquote, pathology, it suddenly so often makes absolute logical sense. The symptom, the behavior, the mood, the attitude, if you can, and this is where for me, somatic experiencing really collaborates with all of my early Hoffman work and training. And Hoffman is also a place where we really don't pathologize people because, you know, Bob used to have something he'd say, Bob Hoffman used to say, you know, neurotics unanimous. And that's an old, you know, Bobism, we used to call them, because basically his attitude was no one escapes, everyone got something. So in somatic experiencing, it's really a non-pathologizing approach. And the interface or intercept between Hoffman for me and somatic experiencing is my years of honing my sensitivity to the early attachment environment that people grow up in, those early bonds with mother and father that help give them the ground of their sense of selves and so many important things. You know, I, I have a very acute listening for that material. And so often that helps me understand the, the attachment traumas, let's say, that some of my clients are bringing to me in a way where we can demystify their struggle, struggles in relationship or their struggles in bringing forward what they want to bring forward in their lives. So, yeah, I guess the weaponizing of a lot of psychology. Well, this is something we used to say like 30 years ago in Hoffman. We used to say, we don't want you to leave here with more sophisticated ways you know, for criticizing yourself. You came into the Hoffman process saying, you know, I'm stupid, I'm bad, I'm no good, I'm stupid, I'm bad, I'm no good. And we don't want to leave, we don't want you to leave here saying, you know, I'm manipulative and I'm, you know, I procrastinate and I, you know, this is what we want to do is help connect you to a sense of your essential goodness and wholeness and lovability. And so, 
being able to understand our challenges psychologically and in Hoffman terms, like in terms of patterns, it can be extremely useful. It's very helpful. It can be liberating, in fact. And it's only going to be liber liberating if, if we set it on a foundation of love and respect for ourselves and others. And that's where the emotional work of Hoffman in, in standing up for that inner child and then later in finding compassion for our parents' inner children, you know, that sets, sets the work on this foundation of um, love and compassion towards self and others as opposed to scrutinizing and pathologizing. Yeah. You talked earlier, Cynthia, about titration. And is that the not making cathartic work wrong, but in the somatic experiencing work, is the titration a slower way of working with trauma? How would you describe titration vis-a-vis -vis the work you do? Titration is a term that Peter borrowed from the field of chemistry, where if you want to put two very um, reactive chemicals together that ordinarily if you put them together in large quantities or quickly you'll have an explosion and in chemistry you know we, we were taught this probably in high school right if you instead put them together in a, at a slow pace and in small drop by drop increments what would otherwise explode then goes through a chemical reaction that is more contained and more organized and what you get is an integration like you get a, a like a molecular compound from those two ingredients instead of something that blows up in fragments you get something that reorganizes to a higher level with both components and if you think about one of the elements of trauma is in a sense fragmentation it's a gift in the moment our system breaks apart experience so that it doesn't overwhelm us too much too fast right and so so elements of experience whether it's feelings emotions sensations images sounds thoughts a lot of it can get like fragmented in a trauma and if you bring all that together too quickly you might just have a re-traumatizing, re-fragmenting, quote-unquote, explosion. But if you begin to bring some of those bits together in a slow, incremental way, giving the system enough time to metabolize what each thing, what each experience is, and then what can end up happening is you can create a situation where an experience that disorganized somebody instead reorganizes and, and helps somebody integrate and become more, you know, even than what they were before the trauma. So but that's a little way of saying how we work with titration. It basically means you take slivers of experience and bring them into consciousness, let them to be, let them be experienced, and you build from there bit by bit so that you don't uh, reenact and and recreate an experience that's too much to be digested like it's that's overwhelming we're, we're always trying to guard against overwhelm and i think in my experience in the hoffman process the teachers do such a good job of providing support and containment and connection relationship and the hoffman process is conducted in a transpersonal field right there's a spiritual foundation to the Hoffman process and a lot of visualizations which can be considered in a sense a kind of a meditation. So there's a way that a lot of the intense experiences of the Hoffman process are balanced and are helped to integrate and to be digested through this point and counterpoint that happens all week long of intensity and then visualization and integration and in a sense meditation, a space for the system to take in and reorganize what it's been doing for the last morning, let's say, and then further experience and then, you know, more integration. And so um, that's a way that the process provides a depth of holding that allows for us to do a lot in a short period of time. 
That's fantastic. I am so grateful for that explanation. I was imagining the metaphor of drinking from a fire hose and that overwhelm as you talk about creating part of the trauma because we can't integrate it, we can't metabolize it, we can't digest it. And so I have a just a question about trauma. It seems so much more part of our uh, jargon and it has entered the 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 common space do, do you feel like when it comes to trauma that we all have some sort of trauma that it's not just the big intense traumas that people talk about that they're little t traumas that we all experience what's your take so there are definitely like lots of challenging and even intense experiences that don't end up being traumas because what we like to talk about and peter emphasizes in his work that you know the trauma isn't the experience itself something isn't even if something we would c- characterize as traumatic it doesn't necessarily produce a trauma as in PTSD post traumatic stress disorder necessarily it depends on a lot of different factors the uh, whether the person has previous PTSD whether they had reasonable support during and after the event whether events piled on one after another after another before the organism could recover there's a lot of things that have a lot of influence but in the somatic experiencing world we consider trauma something where basically this system has been impacted such that there's a there's a reorganization of the brain the amygdala particularly and the then the nervous system doesn't regulate in a healthy rhythmic way as easily anymore the person is more prone to either high sympathetic charge or deep deep what we call dorsal shutdown sort of some of the deep immobility that people can experience after a trauma in normal language we might call that depression um lack of energy like disorientation and the high sympathetic charge we might think of people who are just in a high anxiety state or maybe in a high irritability state that because those are you know high irritability reflects overdominance of fight the fight survival response in the system and high uh anxiety states reflect often an overdominance of the flight response in the system and the deep more depressive low energy states reflect an overdominance of you know the freeze state uh, which is like the deep dorsal situation so to get back to more to the point of your question we can have a lot of experiences and be and, and bounce back from a lot of things humans are incredibly robust and very resilient and resourceful however we're less so when we're teeny tiny like you know in birth and in the early years because our nervous systems aren't fully developed yet we're very very dependent on the humans around us to provide nervous system regulation for us in the form of soothing in the form of calming in the form of creating rhythms and supportive structures of you know loving care and safety and all of that so i would say in in answer more specifically to your question i think there's a lot of people walking around with early trauma that they don't even know they had and that doesn't even you know that then in addition to that you have folks that had let's say a bad car accident or they were mugged or kind of things that we think of as um adult traumas you know terrible falls uh Uh, and those kinds of things but a lot of folks when their nervous systems were more vulnerable and fragile maybe they had um some kind of a you know a birth trauma they had a, a very grueling demanding birth and that's when the the little one you know can easily be deprived for you know you know brief or not so brief periods of as much oxygen as they might need and so these kinds of things can actually create nervous system dysregulation early on um and and then if we have disturbed attachment environments that can create you know a kind of challenge to the regulation so folks who've had some early trauma sometimes don't even know they've had trauma but they just know that their nervous systems are vulnerable or reactive um like it's hard for them to get settled and i think i was very much in that category i had an early 
fetal trauma that I knew had happened, but I didn't realize until many, many years later how impactful it was on my nervous system. So it really set me up to have a, a nervous system that was uh, vulnerable to becoming hyper aroused and then collapsing. Like I could get overwhelmed and very, very um, stressed and move into like a, a kind of a, a sympathetic charged place. And then the only way to come down from that would be to like have a big cry and kind of end up in collapse. And that at least would calm my system down. And I would sort of go through, you know, lots of cycles of that. And um, all the work I did early on helped a lot, but ultimately it was the somatic experiencing work that helped restabilize my nervous system to so that the really good emotional and spiritual work that I'd done in lots of other ways had a, a more stable ground to root into. I was almost thinking like, so it could stick. Exactly. So it could stick. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, Hoffman changed my life. I was a different person after doing Hoffman. I really came to know myself in all kinds of new important ways. I gained a lot of confidence. Um, my self-worth improved enormously. Um, but I could still be fragile and vulnerable at times to overwhelm. And overwhelm was never a good thing for my system. And then I did a, a pretty intensive period of somatic experiencing work for a, a year or two and had some watershed sessions that just, I could just feel my nervous system like, ah, like rest down to a whole new level. And then all that earlier good work, it unfolded in even uh, richer ways from that point. It, it's like the combination was great for me. As you were talking, I was thinking about my son, who's now 16, but who was born six weeks early. And I just, I'm just sitting here like, oh my gosh, like that is exactly what happened. There's some early trauma that has made him deeply sensitive. It, it's one of his gifts and I can see it as an avenue forward that might need some attention as he gets older. Yeah, that's really a beautiful way to frame it, Drew. And, you know, um, you know, it's a, it's wonderful. Like he came early and came through and that's like the most important thing. And then a way to hold it is like his system had to step up to kind of challenges, the challenges of like breathing and digestion and being out in the, you know, gravitational full gravitational world and all those things that happen when you leave the womb, all the demands that are put on the system and his system had to step up to all of that like a little early and, and he did it, which is the great thing. He actually stepped up to all those challenges. Often kids are asked to step up to more than what they're ready for a bit too early and humans and kids and your son we're so resourceful we do it even if we're not ready we do it anyway we figure out our systems figure out a way to do it but maybe we do it with a little more strain and then our systems become habituated to straining to efforting to doing it over and above a place underneath that doesn't feel fully supported and and it seems like we may miss the lesson of that. We think, oh, I did it, I can do it, rather than, wait, I just strained. That's not so good. Exactly. We can get into a habit, and this was a lot of my habit as someone with perinatal trauma, of like pushing too hard and forcing. And what can happen in a wonderful way with these folks is if we can help them find support for an underlying layer that needs a, a way to be able to rest down underneath the efforting and find a landing pad in there and really um, have some time to kind of build out the landing pad, so to speak. Yeah, I just am listening to your vocabulary, the landing pad, the underlying layer, rest, build out this space to kind of allow ourselves to come home to ourselves. Is there any deeper 
work out there. I imagine this feels so fundamental to the core of our being. Well, I love the way you put it, allow ourselves to come home to ourselves. That's where we really want to reside. And then from there, engage with the world around us from being at home inside ourselves. Experts say it's great to find mentors, and you seem to have found mentors from Bob Hoffman to uh, Claudio Naranjo as well. You got to know him, and he's fundamental to helping bring the Enneagram to the world. Yeah, yeah, to the whole world, really. He was the first major person to really explicate the Enneagram of personality and to bring the Enneagram of personality to the United States and and to the West. I got lucky. For some reason, my karma, my path, just sort of ended up being one in which I came into contact early, like in my mid-20s, first with someone named Rezalea Landman and uh, Peter Levine, and then Claudio Naranjo. Well, no, Rezalea Landman, Peter Levine, Bob Hoffman, Claudio Naranjo. I had very uh, close contact with them and contact with all of them over the years. And I just count myself as really blessed and lucky to have been able to learn from these people and to have been able to collaborate with many of them. You know, what's wonderful about you mentioning Claudio is that Claudio, I mean, Claudio was a an extraordinary genius. And he did a lot of work synthesizing work from many realms of of body approaches to transformation, spiritual, religious approaches to transformation, and obviously all kinds of psychotherapeutic and typological approaches to transformation. And he stumbled upon Bob Hoffman. He said, this guy is on to something. This is really important work what Bob is doing. And he talked to Bob. He said, you know, Bob was only working with people one-on-one then. He said to Bob, there's no way you're going to help all the people you can help like this. You have got to start doing this work in groups. And I I teach groups. I can show you how to do what you're doing in groups. And and so then Claudio developed the first Hoffman process and did a, a run-through himself first without Bob and then in, um, invited Bob to come and observe the second run. And, you know, Bob saw what Claudio had put into place and Bob was an eminently creative, energetic, robust person himself. And, you know, he took what he saw and said, great, I got this. I, I get what you're doing here. And he ran with it. And he he then created the Hoffman process as a piece of work that people could do in a group setting. And my sense is that it became more potent that way. It is so powerful to see people early on in the week go inward and do the quiet work as a foundation at the beginning of the week. And then at some point in the week, open their eyes figuratively, look around and see that there are people just like them going through things just like them. And the power of the group work is is really evident. What a gift. I had no idea Claudio Naranjo brought that group piece to Bob. The Hoffman process is definitely uh, Bob's um, brainchild. It came through him in a in a, a kind of a revelatory way. But he was, you know, working one on one with people, basically telling them, you know, like this is what happened to you, and this is why you're you're having the trouble you're having now, and this is what happened to your parents. He was, you know, psychically very gifted, and he could actually. He could perceive things about people's lives just by sitting with them. And Claudio took the the steps that Bob was taking people through and and kind of operationalized them for a work with groups. And then Bob took that and just, he was so creative. Bob, Bob was very in the moment creative. He would come up with stuff all the time. And so he took then the structure that Claudio created that was very functional and, and he just kept creating from that. And and that's that's what today's Hoffman process evolved from. And we'll put in the show notes information about somatic experiencing and Peter Levine's work and also a bit about Claudio Naranjo and the Enneagram. Do you use the 
the Enneagram in the work that you do? You know, all the work that I did with Claudio informs the work that I do. It helps me have a perspective on what may be some of the dynamics that are working in in a situation in a in a person's in a person in in their life. Um, and some folks who work with me um, like to work explicitly with the Enneagram because they're introduced to it. And if they do, then we we use that work. Some people aren't as interested, so. Um, because they've come to me primarily for you know the somatic piece of work. I use whatever tools I have managed to glean over the years to support people if they're interested in those things. And I'd say, you know, again, the, the early relationship of a person to their parents, which was sort of the essential perspective inside my work as a Hoffman teacher, you know, informs all of the work I do every day. What's it like to remember Bob, remember Claudio, remember Peter, and and reflect on on your Hoffman experiences and uh, geek out a little bit with me around uh, some of this stuff? What's what do you notice for you, Cynthia? You ask wonderful questions and you frame our conversation in such a great way. You know, I wouldn't have known I had all this in me to say if you hadn't asked. So I'm grateful, you know, and I'm I'm enjoying putting these different things together that you've offered up. You know, uh, I'm very grateful. Peter's, you know, still alive, and I occasionally assist uh, in trainings that he does, and I I still learn from him all the time. I was with Bob Hoffman until two days before he died, God bless him, when I had to leave to go to Spain to teach the Hoffman process in Spain back in 1997 when when Bob passed. Bob was kind of like a grandfather to me, and I, I had a very good and affectionate relationship with him. And Claudio, you know, he just died, God bless him, about he died two years, just a little over two years ago in July of 2019. And um, yeah, you know, I I have great love in my heart for all of these enormously gifted and extraordinary people. And Reza Leia too, she was very unknown, um, but she had a big influence on how the process originally evolved. She was one of the early process teachers. She had a big influence on how the compassion session was structured. Um, she's the person actually who suggested I become a Hoffman teacher. I was um, I had gone over to Claudio's house to do a psychotherapy session with Rezalea. She was my therapist at the time. And um, I, I was there a little early, and I was a poor young lost soul at the time, and I was doing some trades to pay for some of my therapy. I was doing some gardening there, and Bob Hoffman showed up. And um, they were talking about a bunch of stuff, and Ray's introduced me to him. And and I had already done, actually, the three-month Hoffman process, so I knew who Bob Hoffman was. And Bob left, and I went into my session. And midway through the session, Ray's was like, I know, you should become a Hoffman process teacher. And I was like, what? My therapist isn't supposed to tell me what to do. And she picked up the phone, and she said, let me call Robert. And she called Bob and um, spoke with him. And he said, we'll send her over to the to the office in Oakland. At the time, the office was in Oakland. And, um, and I went, and uh, I ended up doing the process again because the people in the office said, well, you don't know if you want to teach the week-long process. You've only ever taken the the th- old three-month version. So I said, oh my God, do the three-month thing in one week? That's crazy. But I wanted to teach it because Reza said it was a good idea for me to do it. So <laughs> I, I went through the process again. And I have to tell you, the week-long process was more transformative for me than the three-month one had been. It was exactly what the doctor ordered. It was great. And um, it was it was a incredible experience. Um, and I felt I felt incredibly lucky. Not 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 very many people get to do the process twice in their lives. So I thought this is really an opportunity. And then I went on to train to teach it. So, and she was right. It it was for whatever reason the process and my natural interest in people and relationships and emotions and parents and children and child rearing 
it all, it just fit like a puzzle together. I took to the Hoffman process like a fish to water, and I, I love teaching it from the beginning. I sometimes struggle to ask questions like these because they seem so full of practical uh, kind of solutions. But I do want to ask, what's your take on, on people who, if they're not with their therapist or they're not in the process and they do experience uh, some s struggles, some somatic, some body, some reactivity, what do you suggest to people you work with that can help them in their everyday lives in the moment when things do happen that we aren't ready for? Often, you know, when I when we work with clients, you know, we teach a lot of basic somatic skills because they provide a kind of good place to start to do the work itself but they also provide practical skills for everyday living so you know skills in grounding in orienting especially skills in becoming comfortable with tracking body sensations all of those skills help people come a little bit more into the here and now. Bessel van der Kolk says that trauma is the inability to be present in the here and now. And when somebody has been distressed and thrown out of their center by a moment, an experience, or even a really difficult experience, finding a, like a little bit more of a handle on the moment where you're not being hit by the, like a deluge of overwhelm can be really, really important. So Orienting is a very simple experience of just taking a moment and coming out of the inner world and really through vision, visual, like looking around, through listening, sometimes through tactile, the tactile sense through touch. Something is simple, and you can even try it right now while we're sitting here together, Drew. You could just take a moment and let your eyes go where they want to go and let your head and neck and maybe even your shoulders follow your eyes and really let your eyes Go where they want to go. Look toward things that they like landing on. They have a tendency to, as you look around in the environment there where you are, they have a tendency to you know, land, even for just a moment, on different things in your environment. Just give your system that chance to look around and notice where your eyes are being drawn, where they like to land. And then just take a minute and notice how your system feels after letting your eyes go where they want to go. Perhaps even listening to hear, you know, what sounds do you hear in your environment? You may be hearing the sound of my voice, perhaps the sound of your own breathing. Perhaps you're hearing the wind in the trees outside through the window or something else. And then just taking the time to bring your attention out of the inner world and out into the external environment and noticing for a moment, that can be helpful. And also then noticing the sort of weighted, the weighted larger muscles and bones of your body, like notice if you're sitting, the, your hips, in the chair, your seat in the seat, perhaps your feet on the floor. And also, if your back is supported, if you're sitting in a chair, taking a moment and really noticing that support at your back. So from the inside, you're bringing your attention to that contact at your back, at your seat, and at your feet of your body with the support that's right here in the here and now for your body. Really noticing support, ordinary everyday physical support. And noticing where your eyes wanna go, 
looking around in the environment. And so I'm just curious, kind of walked you through that without asking you if you wanted to. Normally we ask people if they want before we do that in somatic experiencing. Yeah, how's it feel? So good. So good. Just I'm, a smile kept coming to my face. And um, I just looked out the window at, at space that had open space that has no, no development on it. And and just smiling, looking at the trees and the land. Yeah, so the space was like uh, nourishing to you, and the trees, the openness was nourishing to you. And how was it to feel the support of the chair if if you happened to be sitting in one? Yeah, it was. I was sitting in it. It just I felt heavy in it. So often we ask people to turn into their emotional world, their thinking world, and this was having them turn out to their body and the world around them. So it's very different. Right, and both are so important. And in this way of working, we like to get well grounded in the here and now in very ordinary here now external and sensation of body landed in the here and now experience because that's like if we have one foot in the here and now as an anchor then it's even safer for us to dive into the inner world and discover the resources in there but also come into relationship again with things that may be challenging in the inner world and um, I had a friend who's a colleague in the somatic experiencing world, a, a friend of mine named Twig, Twig Wheeler. And he always talks about, you know, you, you, you keep one foot out here so that it's really safe to take the other foot in there because then you know where you need to come back out to. If you need a breather, if you need to come back out, you have a safe anchor in the outer world. And and out here, right here and now, everything is really okay. Wow. In fact, doing that allows you to go deeper inward to the healing. Exactly. It's a great combination. Oh, Cynthia, thank you for this conversation. I'm so grateful for your time and, and for the shared space of reflecting on all of your professional travels. Well, thank you so much, Drew. It's so it's so warm and enjoyable to be in conversation with you. And um, I would also just say, you know, you wrote me an email, and I realized I was sloppy when I answered it. I I didn't see the question about had I ever written anything. And um, you know, I I don't I haven't really published things, but I I wrote my master's thesis many years ago about the Hoffman process, and I would just. I just want to name because this podcast is mainly for folks who've either done the process who are or who may be interested in the process, I guess. And I wrote my master's thesis on the Hoffman process as a as a really bona fide modern Western uh, ritual of initiation. For me, after years of teaching it, and then when I I did my my master's work at a school that was very soulful and understood the importance of ritual, I really got clear that the Hoffman process was a rite of passage, a rite of initiation, and that it fulfilled all the central steps of a rite of passage. And so, I don't know, for some reason, I just thought that it would be important to just name that, you know, that I think the Institute probably has a copy of that thesis bouncing around somewhere. Raz used to have a copy of it. So, you said you were interested to to see what you could find in my writing. And the only thing I've really ever written about was the Hoffman process. So there you go. And I love it as a, a ritual, an initiation. What a beautiful initiation and ritual it is. Thank you, Cynthia. Yeah, thank you, Drew. Have a wonderful afternoon. for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi. 
Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.